A very warm welcome to you from Equa Marketing. This presentation is brought to you by Equa.com, a leader in digital marketing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another amazing episode of the Growing Web Podcast Show. This is Naren, your host, uh, the founder of GrowingWeb.com and Equa.com, E-K-W-A.com, a full-service digital marketing company for veterinary practice owners. This is the place, GrowingWeb.com is the place where veterinary practice owners listen to create a bigger future, a bigger future in terms of time, money, purpose, and relationship. And Dr. Brookfield, Dr. Caroline Brookfield is my guest today. She's a veterinarian who has been practicing for more than 20 years. And I usually never do this, but I spent almost uh, 30, 35 minutes just chit-chatting with her because she was so fascinating. Dr. Brookfield, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nari. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Um, for, I just want to give people a sneak peek on what we're talking about. Dr. Brookfield has an amazingly unique background. She's one of those people, um, you know, Steve Jobs said once, you know, you should create your own future, create your own life. Don't live somebody else's life. She's one of those people, reminds me of that, you know, idea of creating your own life. She didn't live anybody else's life. Uh, she took chances. She tried things and hey, she failed a lot, but trust me, she's, she's living her own life. And going back to the theme of the podcast, which is about how to create happiness, how to create a bigger future in terms of time, money, purpose, and relationships. She danced with all these four things and she learned a lot and she's happier because of it. She's a mom of two kids uh, and, uh, you know, and, and somebody who's living a passion when it comes to veterinary medicine. So Dr. Brookfield, why don't you take us through your journey? Just give us a quick overview of all the twists and turns and all the things you have tried. Oh, uh, that might take a while. Uh, I guess, um, you know, talking about when I thought about becoming a veterinarian, I grew up in the, in the vet school town of my province, which was Guelph, seeing all these people with vet school jackets, and I knew I wanted one one day. Um, but I did find myself really struggling in high school, whether to go into the arts, into acting or cinematography or veterinary medicine. And so obviously chose veterinary medicine, uh, graduated from the University of Guelph in 1997 and then traveled around. I went to the U.S. for a few years. Um, I traveled for a year and a half around Asia and Southeast Asia, Australia. Then I did a locum in um, in Saipan in the South Pacific and settled here in Calgary in 2000, in the year 2000. I've been here ever since. That's great. So um, what do you do right now? I know you do a bunch of things. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about how you keep yourself entertained. Yeah. So um, through a journey of going through some, um, some discoveries about my son, I've learned very late in life that I have ADHD, which seems quite obvious, I think, to everybody else in my life. Um, so I always have a lot of things on the go. Um, normally, I do uh, locum work or relief work as my bread and butter. So I work at different clinics every day. Sometimes I'm at three different clinics in a week. And I love that. I also have a very strong entrepreneurial creative side. So I also own an online jewelry business and also do public speaking and uh, my latest passion is stand-up comedy that i've been trying to trying to learn how to do that i'm sure you're making a million bucks from stand-up comedy 
I've made $5 so far. <laughs> and, and that's fine because you, it's something you're passionate about. So it's really about following your heart and following your passions. Yeah. And, and you know, it's true, very true what you said about before that you don't really know what your passions are until you try something. Because right. what we have in our imagination and what really plays out for real are two totally different things. Right. And the only way to know it is to actually get in the game and start playing the game of life. Not being afraid Absolutely. of it, you know, standing in the stands and listening to it, or, you know, commenting on other people's lives. Or, I mean, most of us live lives that we don't really want, but we think we want because other people have it. Oh, the big house, the, the that, you know, that prize or the accolade or whatever it is. Yes, that's so true. So help me understand your journey through that. I mean, did you go through that by any chance when you were younger? Like, did you? do things you said, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, I think what you're talking a lot about is some people talk, call it like hoop jumping or box checking, you know, and especially going through a professional career, you think, okay, well, I have to get into vet school. And once I get into vet school, you know, then I have to, you know, pass my boards. Once I pass my boards, I have to get a job, I have to get a job. And then what, right? So would you go into a specialty? And do you do something else? So, uh, you know, and um, I have a mentor, Kelsey Ramsen, talks a lot about this, um, you know, and she talks about at some point, there's no more hoops for you to jump through. There's no more boxes to check. And then you're left wondering, what do you do? And you have to create your own check boxes and your own hoops. But how do you do that if they're not placed in front of you? And so I think that's the biggest challenge is um, having the courage to walk through a door that you create yourself and not knowing what's going to be on the other side. Right. Um, I want to take this conversation in a slightly different direction. I've never taken this in this way and I, I, you're going to hear it for the first time from me right now, but <laughs> <laughs> you are a mom, right? You have a 10 year old and a 20 year old. And you said you're very active in this, uh, in this Facebook group called DVM moms. Mm -hmm. Help yeah. us see the world from the point of view of moms. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because at least half the people listening are moms or women. Okay. Right? So I want to see the world from the point of view of a mom. Yeah. So, so yeah, I've got a 10 and a 12 year old, not a 10 and 20 year old, but um, they're both boys. And the point of view of a mom is that, that, whole false idea of balance you know as a mom we're always looking for this idea of balancing work and personal life and you can never balance them there's some you can have it all but you can't have it all at one time is what i've heard somebody say so there is a time to focus and on certain things that you want to do in your life and it, it kind of as a mom myself i want my kids to be raised in an environment where i'm modeling the behavior i'd like them to see as adults so you know, working 80 hour weeks, which I was doing in a job when they were pretty little. And that's not modeling what I want for them when they're adults. You know, we, th we think we're sacrificing for our children. But in the end, what we do for them is actually what they're going to aspire to be when they're older. And I don't want my kids to aspire to work 80 hour weeks and being exhausted and not being home. Right. That's an excellent point. So you're saying we tend to, if, if your dad keep saying, you know, I don't have money, I don't have money, we tend to kind of automatically repeat that language and that create that life. Or in the example, I, I work, I work, I work, you know, I'm using dad, but could be a mom, could be a parent, right? So then we tend to 
follow that. So he's saying as a mom, it's really important for you to model the behavior. So if you talk to your, if you, I mean, what's the point of um, telling your kids, be happy, you know, focus on relationships, you know, care about each other when you yourself don't do it. So you don't want to be a phony, if I may use that term lightly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. And do you find that rewarding? Do you find being authentic, being true to who you are and, and, and living a life based on who you want to be and who you are is satisfying to you? I don't know that I would use the word satisfying. I think what I've really embraced is this idea of being uncomfortable and that in the discomfort and this feeling of um, ne- never feeling like it's perfect is where you truly find the satisfying life. But it doesn't feel like it most of the time because it's uncomfortable because you're not in that comfortable space of doing the same thing you've always done. That's a great point. So help me understand that. If somebody is listening, help me understand. Like let's say somebody who's afraid of that you know, uncomfortable space and they never get into it. <clears throat> Tell us a story. Like how did you get into that space and, and how did it feel like? And <clears throat> I just want to understand you know, as a mom, as somebody who has been through it, how do you see it? Well, I guess the way that I look at things a lot of times is just I, I, I balancing risk. So, for instance, when I left my corporate job um, where I was working many hours and going to basically be home with my children, that's financially a very difficult decision. But I looked at it from a practical standpoint with my, you know, scientific brain like, what is the likelihood that we're really going to lose our house and be homeless on the street? That's really not going to happen. I, you know, I, I can go back to work. I can find another job. I can do many different things. We can move to a smaller house. So for me, I try to analyze what is the risk. And if there really truly was a high likelihood that I would lose my house and go homeless, then, you know, I have responsibilities to my family and that's not a decision I would take. But I think that we tend to focus as as a species anyway, we, like we're naturally drawn to fear and to the worst case scenario. And so we naturally go there first. But when you think about really what is the probability that that's going to happen, it's extremely low. You kind of build yourself a bit of a safety net so that you can make those little jumps and staying in that discomfort uh, and knowing when, when is the time to bail. You know, you bring up an excellent point. Even though we conceptually think about a worst case, we never actually really think about a worst case. What I mean is, um, the example you gave, right? When you really sat down and thought about, am I going to lose my house? Am I going to stay on the street? You know what? It's probably not going to happen. You know, people mm-hmm. all around the country, including in Canada, have pets. If you want to, mm-hmm. you can get a job. It's not the end of yeah. the world. But right. we don't really sit through and take that five minutes, not 50 hours, five minutes to think it through. And uh, we're both Canadians, so we are neither, neither of us. <laughs> Uh, caught up in the U.S. uh, politics. But one of the people I look at is Donald Trump. He probably Mm -hmm. sat one day and said, you know what, what's the worst case? If I lose this, I lose maybe $30 million. Yeah, I have a lot of money. $30 million is not a big deal. But I'm going to be famous. Yeah. I have nothing to lose. Yeah. You know what I mean? (coughs) You're right. Like what people have to lose is very personal and very uh, dependent. But I think that Um, we're also geared to stay in a narrow bandwidth of our comfort zone. That's just the way our species has evolved. You know, if we, 
if we were going to, you know, go, leave the safety of our village, you know, in the forest where we normally hunted our game, and then we wandered off into this new area, we're going to be scared and nervous because we don't know if a predator is going to come and eat us. Right. So that lingers nowadays. And so we are, we are scared of leaving the familiarity and comfort of what we know, even if it's not what's best for us. Right. I mean, a classic example is, you know, we all have, I have two girls, 12 and, uh, 12 and 16. And one of the fears wow. we all have is, uh, you know, what if somebody kidnaps your kids, right? What if this happens? Yes. Because you see that one show where one kid was kidnapped and murdered and all this crazy stuff. But if you mm-hmm. really study the numbers compared to the 1950s, mm-hmm. today is so much more safer than in those days. But in those <laughs> days, kids would take a bus. They would go on their own. They would go places. Today, parents... Yeah, Narina, I have to tell you the story about my son. So um, my son, in January, when he was 11, um, went on a program to Brazil for a month. And uh, I didn't speak to him the whole month. And what was fascinating is when I told parents where my son was and what he was doing, I always got a shocked reaction. But the, the reaction went from, you're such a terrible parent, or... I can't believe you let your kid do that. That's so amazing. I wish I could do that. And just complete, like, how would I get my kid involved in that? And it was so interesting, the polarizing responses I got from having my son participate in that program. Because you're right. People think that if your child's out of your sight for a minute, that they're going to be nabbed and terrible things are going to be happening. Right, right. And it's all imaginary fear. It's not true. Like, like that imaginary fear that, oh, what if I'm going to be on the street? It's all made up in your head. It's not true. Yes. But the minute right. you really think it through and you, oh, yeah, you're, I'm sure you didn't leave your son without checking out the place and the camp and talking to parents mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Once you think it through and do the due diligence, you're like, it's an awesome experience for him. Exactly. You know, let me ask you this because you are a mom. Do you think this impacts moms more because they are, quote unquote, the protectors of the family? Do you think they kind of, you know, uh, imagine the worst case more? I, I don't know. I'm just wondering why, like you said, mm-hmm. a lot of people are not willing to go to that discomfortable space. Forget it, because here we're not even talking about their own kids. We're just talking about a stupid job or stupid career. You know what I mean? It's not the end of the world. Yeah, if you lose your kid, you're going to be worried for the rest of your life. You, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, so you're wondering if women have a harder times um, going outside of the bounds because of the... Yeah, in other words, do they Something. imagine... Do they imagine, I don't want to generalize, but do you feel like as a mom, you're more afraid or you're even like you mentioned, right? This judgment that people had, oh, you are a terrible mom, mm-hmm. right? At the beginning, oh, how can you do this? Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that question. I think that I would say yes and no. So I say yes, because I think culturally that's the expectation. So if I'm, if I'm the one mom that lets her young kids walk to the bus alone and all the other moms walk their kids to the bus alone, then I'm culturally pressured to be worried about my kids because that makes me, you know, not part of the group. Um, I say no, because between my husband and I, my husband is the most conservative. He's the one that worries about things. I've traveled internationally. I lived actually in India for a year when I was young. So for me, I have less concern. So I think, does that answer your question? So I'd say yes and no on that. Yeah, absolutely does. But this, I want to piggyback on this point about culturally, right? Do you feel, I mean, I know you, you, you didn't really care what the moms thought. Even if they told you you are a terrible mom, you would have still, still sent him, right? Just because, uh, 
Yeah, I cared a little bit, but not enough to change my behavior. <laughs> right, right. Is that a muscle you developed over time or were you always like that? In other words, let me ask you, let me clarify this. Because a lot of times, like you said, we do things we see others doing. And um, I, I come from marketing. So there's a person by the name of Dr. Robert Cialdini. He wrote a book called Influence. He's a psychologist. Oh, yeah. I read uh, Power of Influence and Persuasion. I yeah. love both of those books. Yeah, he wrote two books. And he talks about we do things we do uh, see others doing. He talks about social proof, right? So mm-hmm. we tend to, because, you know, the minute you break out of the crowd, people call you names, they do these things. And it's, it didn't just happen yesterday or today. It has been happening for thousands of years, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, even you know, even queens and kings. You know, you I saw that movie about the person who had to give up his throne and all that stuff. You know, because you're you're not supposed to marry people outside of your family and all these rules. I mean, this is England, and you know, the most powerful people. But even for them, these rules are so powerful. You know, so do you feel that cultural norms and those things has a huge impact on us? Is that one of the reasons why we 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 don't? get out of our comfort zone and, and and in your life how did you how did you I don't want to say you don't care about what others think but how did you develop that muscle to, in spite of what people say or think or you think they think a lot of times they don't even think that you think they think that that's yeah that's a very good point we put all these stories on what people are saying about us and I think that's a muscle I've developed more recently and growing up I, I mean I was always different and I think it goes back to probably undiagnosed ADHD at that time like I was never one that kind of fit the mold and I desperately just wanted to fit in and um, and I had a really unusual family situation my my dad was a geology professor and was a bit eccentric and we traveled extensively and and it just wasn't so I guess maybe part of it is upbringing and then some of it is just just thinking you know well whatever, what's the worst that could happen? Kind of like you had said earlier, you know, if I feel compelled to try something, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? So if it's not that bad, then I'd rather try than sit on the sidelines and wish I had tried. Because, you know, they say when people are reaching the end of their life, they don't regret, you know, doing the same thing all the time. They regret not taking those chances. And so maybe for me, it's an acute, um, uh, awareness of mortality. I don't want to get to the end of my life and regret things. In fact, I'll tell you a little secret. That's kind of how I decided to have kids. I you know, was thinking, do I want kids? Do I not want kids? It wasn't a, a burning desire or something I'd known ever since I was little. And I thought, you know, I'd rather have them because I don't want to get to a point in my life and think, oh, man, I wish I had had kids. So that's kind of how I make most of my decisions. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I didn't know this, but I heard the number one regret people have when they die is all the things they didn't do. Mm-hmm. All the things they said they, they wish they had done. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, so when you look at life from that point of view, taking risks and, and also once you think it through, oh yeah, you know what? I'm not going to be on the street. You'll be okay. You know, once you take the five minutes to think that through, it, it uh, changes your life. Um, yes. Let me ask you this. I mean, having lived the life that you wanted to live as opposed to a life you were told to live, or, uh, you know, based on your profession, based on dot, 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 fill in the blanks, do you feel you're happier? If you had to go and redo it, would you live the life that you, you have lived? Yeah, that's such a hard question. Yes. And 
I'll tell you an interesting story. So if I go back to high school, sometimes I think, you know, maybe I should have gone into art and drama because that was, funnily enough, that was the harder choice because it wasn't as defined. The hoops weren't quite so, so obvious for that path. And, you know, after being 20 years as a vet, sometimes I thought, you know, what would life have been like if I'd followed, you know, to become a cinematographer or an actress? And then I ran into a friend from high school not that long ago, and she was the opposite. So she followed an artistic career, and she was saying to me, you know, I wish I had just gone and become like a doctor or something. because, and it, So it's really interesting. Like, it's a very hard question to, to answer. So I think that life is just that journey that you just have to keep. I, I think of it as a series of doors, like a field of doors, and you kind of choose a door to walk through. And you can't really come back through that same door, but now you have a whole another set of doors that you can walk through. So it's just a question of just moving forward and just with the confidence of knowing yourself is really important. I found that's really helped me out is knowing what my personality is, what's my strength, what are the things I'm good at and not good at, and, and leverage that to propel myself forward. Right. You know, that's the other thing you mentioned, right? We are think we think happiness is at the end of the journey it's not it's during the journey right, right. so doesn't matter whether you are an artist or a veterinarian or whatever it is but if you're not having fun every minute every day or at least many of the minutes every day that's where unhappiness comes from right mm-hmm. because a lot of people can i mean on paper they have all the money all the accolades they have especially in doctors right all these dot dot dots but they're miserable, you know, divorced and kids don't talk to them and all those crazy things. Yeah. You know? So I think we misunderstand success and happiness. We think if we have those dot, dot, dots, we are going to be successful. And we think if we are successful, we are going to be happy. But mm-hmm. real life is right now in this minute, you know, me being with you right now, even though we are not next to each other, we are like thousands of miles away, you know, talking on a, on a computer. Um, that's happiness, meaning because I'm in the moment, I'm contributing, I'm learning, I'm getting something back. You are in the moment, you are contributing, you are getting something back. And hopefully the listeners are doing the same thing. So I, I don't know, what's your take on that? What's your view on what is happiness? Yeah, and you know, I hear other people talk and I have a terrible memory, so I, I can't give the quotes the right attributions. But people talk a lot about happiness as being a state to aspire to as kind of being a bit of a false idea that we want to aspire to fulfillment and contentedness. And that doesn't mean you're going to be happy all the time. It means there's going to be times of, of sadness and discomfort. And, and I like your idea of talking about mindfulness because, you know, the only time that we worry is when we're thinking about the future. And the only time we're sad is when we're thinking about the past. So if we're enjoying this moment right now, this second, there's really nothing to worry about or be sad about. Right. Also, we sometimes project other people's lives into our lives or we project our past into the future. So let's say when you were young, you might have done terribly in math, right? When you're going into the math test, that thing comes over your head. Oh, man, I'm going to fail this test. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we somehow take that thing that happened to us and we, 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 we relive that story again and again and again. And of yeah. course, if you think you're going to do bad in the exam, you more than likely are going to go do bad in the exam. I'm using that as yeah. an example, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of people say, I, I don't know how you can do stand-up comedy. And it's tough. Like, it is tough. But if I think about it, before I go on the stage, I think, 
I'm up here and they're down there. So who cares what they think? <laughs> you know, so they're up here with me, you know, and, and so I think I, I have a lot of that self-talk. And I read a book recently that was phenomenal for me. It's called Learned Optimism by Martin Seligman. Have you heard of this book or no, read it? No, I'm going to download it right now. What is it called? He, yeah, it's called Learned Optimism. He's written a few books. I think this other book is called Flourish. And actually, I think he has a book called Happiness, in fact. And he's um, a psychologist, researcher. He spent his whole life dedicated to, to researching, you know, uh, positive psychology. And, uh, and it's, ama- it's an amazing book. And he talks about a self-explanatory style and how that is the biggest predictor of, of optimism and how you explain how things happen. And there's a test in there that you can take. And I found it very interesting because they, he breaks it down into different aspects. So for instance, if I come across an adverse event or an obstacle, I'm actually very optimistic. Like I, I'm like, I can, you know, kind of what we talked about, what's the worst that can happen? I can manage this. If I come across a positive event, like I've gotten an accolade or accomplishment, I actually quite pessimistic. I say, oh, it must've been just because no one else was showed up or, you know, so it is very interesting to find out that I'm optimistic in some situations, but not in others. And how the explanatory style, how you talk to yourself, if you say, you know, if it's a permanent, I think he talks about being permanent, pervasive and personal. So if I say I am stupid all the time, that is a terrible self-explanatory style. But if I say this time, I didn't really do that well on the test. Um, because I really didn't study that hard or whatever. Like that's right. a lot, a, a much more positive and healthier self-explanatory style. So I'm really fascinated by that idea of how you can turn yourself around and become more optimistic. Yeah, if the story you tell yourself is, I'm good at something, pretty much you start believing you're good at something. It actually happened with my two daughters. I mean, they were quote unquote very shy and, uh, and uh, that's what they heard because we told them don't be shy, don't be shy. So they kept yes. hearing shy. They didn't hear the word don't, they just heard the word shy. So mm-hmm. we moved schools and this was in grade four. And um, so I'm like, I have nothing to lose, right? When you hit rock bottom, that's when you really have your breakthroughs. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so me and my wife had a chat and then I called up the teacher and I said, hey, 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 you know, I know she has a lot of respect for teachers. You have tried this, you know, you don't be shy business and it's not working. We tried it for three years. What if we try something else? What if we never talk about shy? You are new. She doesn't know you. So she knows that you don't know. You don't know that she's shy. What if... Yeah you create environment where you talk about the fact that she's outgoing and mm-hmm. she's like, okay, great. Leave it with me. And she hung up the phone. Amazing teacher, this lady to change their life. Wow. So she walks into the school and she somehow convinces her to participate in a speech competition. And the way it works <laughs> is uh, the kid who wins becomes the representative for the entire class in the principal's council. Right. So there was a competition. So half girls, yeah. half boys. So yeah. she hated it. She was crying her guts out. And I was not even in the country at the time because my father had passed away. So she, oh. so my, my wife, you know, um, you know, helped her through this and she somehow did it. And surprise, surprise, she got all the votes. She's a new kid. And all the girls were, had clicks and they were trying to convince each other to vote for her. And all the boys, because they didn't want to get into any trouble, they voted for her. <laughs> <laughs> So she becomes, becomes, uh, you know, this, you know, class, anyway, rep. Now her story is, I am, I I love 
public speaking. I can talk to anybody in the world. And this teacher right. over that entire year kept pushing her forward, saying, you can do this. See, you mm-hmm. want the, you beat everybody else in the class. You're the best, you know, <clears throat> best person to do things, to lead. <clears throat> oh, that's amazing. What an amazing teacher. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, it's, it's psychology. It's all about how we believe things. And this lady understood it. I mean, mm-hmm. she changed my daughter's life. Yeah. And, um, and, and, but, and, and we all have those kind of people in our lives. We all remember them, you know. I'm sure my daughter yeah. has a few. Like, <coughs> so my point is, you know, a lot of these fears is imaginary fears. It's not real fears. Yeah. A lot of these self-talk is imaginary. And what you're saying makes total sense to me. And because I've experienced it. You know, it's, it's really around. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about vets, it made me think about, um, you know, how we'll see 20 clients in a day and then the one client is snippy or rude to us and we, we dwell on it for three days. Well, that person didn't think about you a second after they walked out of your practice. Chances are, exactly. you know, but we brood and think about it for days and days. Um, but it, it's, but it's that whole, it's that explanation. Oh, they must have this. So we put these storylines in people's heads in our own heads and other people's heads for them. And, uh, and they're not necessary. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and that's, and then we don't live in the reality of the person. We live through the story of that person, you know, Very uh, true. whether it's our story about ourselves, a story about others. Like I have done this and trust me, I, I'm guilty as charged. You know, let's say I think somebody is smart. I expect them to be smart. I think somebody's super, you know, super interesting. I expect them to be interesting. Yeah. I think somebody is wasting my time. I expect them to waste my time. And yes. everything I do, everything I act, that's what it communicates. So we are not listening to what's really going on out there. We are listening to, you know, our stories and our, our, our biases. And like you said, that example you gave me is an excellent example, right? That one experience now means the next 60 patients that Vet sees She's going with the expectation of that person is going to snip, you know, be nasty. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, when you yeah. go in with that expectation, you know what, maybe not everybody will be, but decent number will be. Now that story gets even more stronger. Anyways, yes. It's, it's Get the a, confirmation bias. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and we know through, um, through research that we are, and especially as veterinarians and people who are trained, you know, in a, a more traditional left brain kind of capacity, I guess, so to speak, that we think that we're so unbiased and we think that we're so objective, but we, but they know we all make decisions with our emotions and then we use our brain to justify them. So it's interesting how we think we're so objective and analytical, but at the end of the day, we're still just no different than when we were, you know, hunting and gathering or whatever the case may be. We're still reacting as emotional beasts. Right. I mean, um, yeah, anyways, I mean, I, I understand why you love Dr. Cialdini because he talks about a lot of these things in both mm-hmm. his books. And yeah, Well, seen- I love him especially, and I, I recommend him frequently for veterinarians because he's very data-based. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of great authors and people who have great ideas, but I love him because he's got that credibility and he has done, he's got reasons for making his statements. It's not just, you know, made up out of, out of the air. Right. He does experiments. He actually tries his theories with thousands of people before he talks about it. Right. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Doctor. I really enjoyed talking to you.
if somebody wants to follow you, I mean, you are a blast. So I really appreciate your time and, uh, you know, all the insights you shared with us. If like, let's say a, a veterinarian, young, old mom, dad, husband, wife, anybody wants to talk to you, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, how can they follow you? Any, any, any tips? Yeah, so uh, I do have a website for my public speaking um, passion that I'm also doing. Oh, I forgot to mention that when you asked me what I was doing. I'm also doing public speaking. Um, so it's carolinebrookfield.com. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Facebook. And uh, my email is carolineebrookfield at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you very much. We'll include all of that contact information uh, along with the call notes. Yeah, and I really enjoyed our conversation. It was awesome, Noreen. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I want to thank all the thousands of people who listen to us, our podcasts, who visit our websites. Uh, the fact that you're making a decision to you know, listen and think differently, that itself is, is amazing because without that action, nothing happens. So life lives in action. So thanks for taking action. Thanks for listening. I wish you all the very best.